near one of our students, one of our high school students, be prepared to elbow them and wake them up. Uh, they've had a long weekend, and uh, I know they've got to be a little drowsy right now. So, um, well, all right, we started a uh, mini-series, mini-sermon series last week. We're calling it God's Design, and last week we talked specifically about God's design and creation, that God's design is good. God's design is Good, um, but last week, unfortunately, we had uh, we had a, an internet outage, so uh, we weren't able to live stream. If you're watching today, you missed it last week, but we did record it, and I think posted it on our website at mvcaniston.com. So if you'd like to check that out or share it, you're more than welcome to do that. Um, what we focused on, like I said, is God's good design. So let me review, and then we'll move into some new stuff. Um, so God is Creator, right? You guys are asleep. All of you are asleep. Let's, let's try it again. God is our creator, right? Okay, which means, okay, okay, go, go back to sleep. Which means uh, he, he is all powerful. This thing is, let me grab my ear there. He's all powerful and he has all authority over all that he made. God owns it all, right? So every detail, we saw that God is intricately involved with his creation in every detail, even like that little flap that determines whether food goes down this tube or that tube. Right. Even in those little bitty details, God is intricately involved. Everything that he made reflects his goodness. God is good. And so his creation is good. But mankind uniquely was made in the image of God. None other of his creation is said to be created in his image. Now this church, this is where we have the bedrock of our worth as humans, right? Is in the the fact that we are created in the image of God. It transcends your talent, transcends how much money you have. It transcends your ethnicity, your skin color, your intelligence, your athleticism. All those things really don't matter. The fact that you were created in God's image is supreme as far as giving you worth. So so the idea that one ethnicity is worth more than another is garbage because God created us in his image and with his likeness. Does that make sense? So we only we only touched on that. There's a lot there. But God created us in his image to uh, to represent him, to display his glory In all the earth. God made man. Called him Adam. And Adam named all the animals. And in the process of naming the animals. You know he noticed that. uh, Every animal had a complementary partner. But that there wasn't a helper fit for him. And for the first time in the creation story. God looked at the fact that man was alone and he said about it. What did he say? It is not good. It is not good that man should be alone. So God put Adam to sleep. He um, performed the very first surgery, essentially. Put him to sleep, took out a rib, right? And from that rib, he made woman. And for the first time, God met the man's need by giving him a woman. 
And Adam was so excited to have her that he actually sang over her. It's the first time we have human words in the Bible, and it's actually a poem, a song. And he says, at last, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. He sings over her, and there's finally this helper that's suited for him. And so the Bible summarizes by saying that God created us male and female. And last week we affirmed that that's how God made humans, both male and female. It's here that we see God's perfect design, not just in creation, but his perfect design for relationship, for love. And with as much care and attention to detail as he worked in his creation, God certainly has a detail specific design for love and marriage and sex. And um, so we will talk about all of those things today. Will you open your Bible with me in a short reading this morning? Go ahead and stand to your feet. Genesis chapter 2. I know those seats are comfortable. Genesis chapter 2. Just a few verses we'll read together. We stand um, to honor God's word. Would you pick up the story with me in verse 22? Genesis 2.22. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. Therefore. A man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Let's pray. Our Father, you created, and your creative design is wonderful. Your goodness to us is unmatched. Thank you, Lord, for the gift of love, especially the covenant love of marriage. Help us to embrace the goodness of your design for love and to reject all counterfeits. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. So I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but the Bible begins, we don't even get two chapters in before the Bible begins with a a marriage, with a wedding. And if you think about it, Jesus's ministry, his his miracle working ministry, do you know where it began? What where where did Jesus work his first miracle at a wedding? Right. He turned water into wine at a wedding. And then in the book of Revelation, the very last verses, the very last few chapters of the Bible. Guess what the storyline is about? A wedding. The marriage supper of the Lamb in Revelation 19 and again in chapter 21. This is a big theme in all the Bible. God is teaching us something about relationship with him from the very opening of the book when he talks about marriage in particular. So I want us to just teach us a few main ideas about marriage. First is this marriage is God's doing. Marriage is God's doing. The idea we're talking about here is covenant instead of contract. And we'll dig into that in a moment. But we often think about marriage simply as like a legal agreement, uh, a recognized document, if you will, or or a contract two people make with each other. 
where, um, you know, once you submit all that paperwork, you get some tax benefits, right? So we often think about marriage in these ways, but the government really doesn't have a lot to do with marriage. The reason this, this principle I'm teaching right now, marriage is God's doing, is really important is because we cannot give our government something they didn't create. Think about it for a moment. Marriage is a hot topic today, right? Who can marry who and all those kinds of things, big questions about marriage. But the government didn't come up with marriage, right? It was something God came up with right at the very beginning of time. So if the government didn't come up with it, they can't really edit its limitations or its definition. That is God's business. Marriage is not a man-made thing. And so it's not editable by man. God established marriage to be a covenant, not just a contract. Um, There's a lot here. I do want to show you an image on the screen. What's the difference between a covenant and a contract? What's the difference between a covenant and a contract? In In a contract, look at the left side of the screen here. In a contract... It's between two people, a man and a woman make an agreement. They, they agree together and they, they you know, sign some paperwork. This is a contract. In a covenant, it's between three people, a man, a woman, and God. They make a covenant together with the Lord for marriage. In a contract, the, the man and woman, they both seek their own best interests. I'm in this thing as long as it's good for me. As long as you make me happy, I'll, I'll be committed to you, right? It's a contract. You fall down on your end of the deal, things are going to get dicey. I might be out of here. This is a contract. In a covenant, I seek God's will for our best interest. Not just self-interest, but God's will for our interest. In a contract, we negotiate the terms, right? You negotiate terms, you come to a settlement, you make an agreement, and it's like, if you, then I. If you, then I. That's a contract. In a covenant, we don't negotiate terms, we serve each other. In a contract, I keep a record of your performance. Some of you are going, I'm in a contract marriage (laughs) right now. Uh, I keep a record of your performance. What does 1 Corinthians 13 teach us about love? Keeps no record of what? Wrongs. That's right. In a contract, I keep record of performance. In a covenant, I keep no record of wrong. In a contract, I punish your failures. Some of you know what it's like to live in a, in a relational setting where uh, someone's always holding over your failures. You can't escape your own mistakes. That's a contract. In a covenant, the, the default setting is to forgive. To forgive failure. In a contract marriage, the goal is winning. <laughs> we want to win. In a covenant, the goal is worship. It's a big distinction. And lastly, in a contract marriage... It's a professional relationship. And in a covenant, it's a personal relationship. This is a big difference. There's a lot more we can say about this, but hopefully that imagery is helpful. Here's some things we see from the scripture about marriage. When we say marriage is God's doing, the first thing we have to see is that God designed it. God designed marriage. In chapter 1, verse 27, it summarizes. You know, it says that God made man and woman in His image. Right. He made them male and female. And then his instructions immediately thereafter are that they should go and be fruitful and multiply. It's his design to put men, a man and a woman together to multiply. 
for one man, one woman to be joined in marriage and through their loving union, he's going to continue his creative work by making babies. This is what God's design is. Well, then we get the detailed storyline in chapter two, right? Of when Adam was alone for a little while and how God acknowledged his need for a counterpart. Now, this didn't happen with any of the rest of creation. So it's not that God made a mistake. Oh, you know what? I should have made that woman. Ah, okay, we'll fix this. That isn't how that played out. God doesn't make mistakes, right? He intentionally is teaching us something about man and woman and the marital covenant. He's teaching us that man's aloneness is not good. Look, we, God designed this. Look specifically at chapter 2, verse 18. It says, this is God speaking. He says, I will make him a helper fit for him. God's initiative, his design, his plan is to make a helper. So woman being made for God, this is God's design. It was at the end of the sixth day of creation that God sat back. He sort of looked at all the things that he had made. And the Bible says he looked at all of it. Chapter one, verse 31. And over all of it, he said what? It is very good. So God's work in all of creation is very good, including his design for marriage between the man and the woman. So here's the question. Will we, what has been made, say to our maker that his design is not good? That his design for marriage is not good? That it's God's perfect creative design is not sufficient for us? And the truth is that any better idea that you or I may have, any better option that we may come up with is actually a rejection of God's authority, of God's power, of his design. And it's an embracing of sin to reject God's way and go your own is the very definition of sin. So when we look at marriage in particular, when we see God's specific Intentional design for marriage to reject it and go your own way is to sin against your creator. Look specifically something else. Another detail we see he gave the woman to the man. God didn't just make Eve and then drop her in the garden next door. Right. And just wait on things to sort of let's just see what happens, you know. That's not what the Bible teaches us. I want you to look at a detail in chapter 2, verse 22. The Bible says that God brought her to the man. Isn't that great? He didn't just make her and like drop her over here and be like, okay, let's see how this thing plays out. No, he gave her to him. This is literally where we get the idea in a marriage ceremony of a father giving away his daughter to be the wife of another man. God has just fathered in a very real way this woman. And now he is intricately involved in bringing this first marriage together. You single guys in the room, don't get the wrong idea. God will probably not just grab and bring your wife to you. (laughs) So uh, don't be lazy, right? So... um, this, this moment is not meant to be prescriptive like that. Um, if, if you take it that way, then you're probably going to have to give up a rib also, you know, to, to get there. But what we see here is that God gave the woman to the man. Then we see that he decreed 
this pattern for all people. He decreed this pattern for all people. Look at chapter 2, verse 24. This verse is a standout parenthetical statement, right? It doesn't even directly fit in the narrative as it's unfolding. Um, The narrative unfolds, the, the man and woman come together, and then there's this statement about it. Therefore, we see that word therefore to connect the teaching principle to the narrative that has just unfolded. So because God designed this man and this woman for a union and because he was involved in uniting them, therefore, here's the pattern for all marriage. It's even worded more strongly than that. Look at the scripture in verse 24. It actually says the man shall leave his parents and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. The word shall is not simply God acknowledging what will happen in the future. It's actually his decreeing it to happen. Or rather, you could say his commanding it to happen in this way. Think of it like this. Thou shalt not Lie, thou shalt not steal. The word shall here has that same commanding emphasis. God is issuing commands as a pattern for all marriage. And the pattern is one man leaving his family of origin, his parents, and committing himself to a wife, holding fast to her. They unite in a covenant committed relationship where the flesh union of sex mirrors their new spiritual oneness. God has made two into one. Let me ask you in verse 24, who's speaking these words? Let me say it this way. Who wrote the book of Genesis? Come on, you know this. Moses wrote it. So Moses wrote these words, but who's speaking them? Yeah, how do we know God speaks them? Well, if uh, I think we put this on the screen. Matthew 19, Jesus is asked a question about divorce. So there's a lot of questioning about marriage and divorce in their culture. The, the men, if they were tired of their wives, they would just write up a certificate of divorce, present it in, in public square and say, I divorce you. And it was over. So the men came to Jesus one day and they said, hey, is it is it right for a man to divorce his wife for any reason? And so speaking about divorce, Jesus comes back to this story and he quotes from Genesis 2. And here's what Jesus tells us. Look at Matthew 9, verses 4 through 6. Jesus answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And he said, look at that phrase. He said, God said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Who said it? The one who created a male and female, right? He's the one who said those words. So these words carry the the very voice of God, his authority, his power and his authority. He is telling us what marriage is meant to look like. And then Jesus follows that up with what therefore God has Join together, let not man separate. Who, who joined them together? God joined them together. So that reiterates our main idea here is that marriage is God's doing. It's not just you signing some papers and giving it to a courthouse. Marriage is God's doing. 
According to Jesus, it is God himself that speaks this decree about marriage. And that's in the context of God speaking to create. So think about how much power those words have, right? His powerful, authoritative voice is now being used to dictate the pattern for marriage. Listen, God's design for marriage needs no updating. No alterations, no adaptations, no culturally relevant updates. His design is perfect. It is his design and his decree for marriage. And if we want to honor the Lord, we will honor his word and believe it. Last thing here, he joins the man and woman as one flesh. Joins them as one flesh. Notice um, what else Jesus said in the verse in Matthew 19. He said, what therefore God has joined together. So he's reiterating the reality that marriage is God's doing, even down to the uniting of bodies and souls. So God took a, think about the math here for a minute. We started with one human, right? We started with Adam. God put Adam to sleep in front of Adam. He made How many people do we have now? Two made Adam and Eve, right? And then in marriage, and bringing Eve back to Adam, they become one flesh. And so now we have how? We have what? One. One plus one equals one. (laughs) Gotcha. Um, One plus one equals one. This is God joining man and woman as one flesh. They're no longer two, but one flesh. This is... This is God doing the work of marriage. It's not just the vows that men say or that women say in a ceremony. It's not just the pronouncement of a pastor, although that's important. It's not just the legally recognized documents in the courthouse. According to Jesus, God is the one who does the work of joining people in marriage. This is a big deal, which means... Without his working, without God's work of joining people in marriage, those other things mean very little. Let me make a sweeping statement, three little words. I want you just to think about this. God owns marriage. Do you believe that, church? He owns it. He created it, right? He started it, so he owns it. Second truth, marriage is God's gift. Marriage is God's gift. As with all of creation, it's a good thing and it's a good gift. I want to focus in here for a moment. There's a lot of things we could talk about, but I want to focus in specifically on the becoming of one flesh, the consummation. We talked about covenant. Now we're talking about consummation of the covenant. And what the Bible says that it is good. None of the rest of God's creation had this dramatic entrance of a counterpart, right? Um, God made the animals male and female. They just go and do their thing. But in this setting for man, for humans, there's this beautiful void that God fills with woman. And from the point of their union, they are called husband and wife. Now these, these terms, these titles establish relationship with ownership. Does this make sense? If you're, how many in the room are a husband? Raise your hand. Okay, you're not just a husband. You are her husband. Does that make sense? How many in the room are wives? Raise your hand, ladies. If you're a wife, okay, you're not just a wife. You're his wife. 
Here's the truth I want us to see is that these terms, these two, these names, husband and wife, that come with relational ownership, possessive nature, singularly possessive. You're not the husband of multiple women. You're the husband of one wife. The wife of one husband. This is how God intended the marriage covenant to be. Exclusively enjoyed between these two people, one for another. Um, I was just thinking about this, thinking about, in particular, um, the one flesh intimacy of marriage and thinking about the good nature of it, that it's good. Have you ever thought for a moment about how good God is in the gifts that he gives? Come on, guys. Have you thought about this for a minute? God is a good gift giver. I'm terrible at gift giving. I'm terrible. I'll just be honest. Really terrible. My wife uh, reminded me around Thanksgiving or whatever. She was like, hey, look, I don't need your jewelry. I don't need that cologne you think smells good. I don't need any of those things. I'll make you a list. (laughs) I'm not a good gift giver. I'm just not. I try. I'm not good. God is a good gift giver. Think about this for a minute. You ever worked all day and not had anything to drink and you're incredibly thirsty, right? And then what? What do you what does your body need? Water. You take that cold water and you start chugging it. You just mm, right. Oh, I needed that. Mm. It's quenching. And guess what? It is good. The things that you need to sustain life. God has actually made them in such a way that you enjoy it, right? What about food? Your body needs it to survive. You need it. But guess what He gave you? Taste buds, a sensitive palate. And you put good food in your mouth, it's a worshipful experience, right? (laughs) Oh, oh, that mm, that is good, right? Think about the goodness of the giver. He doesn't just give you what you need and you're like, oh my gosh, I have to eat again. <laughs> That's not his design. He's created it so that what you need, you enjoy. And it is no different with sex in marriage. It is intended to be good. It's purposeful, right? It sustains life. It's the, it, what, it, what helps us procreate and continue human life. It's necessary. If we don't do it, we all die eventually. So it is necessary, like eating and drinking. But it is good, and God intended it to be good and pleasurable. He made it that way. Now, it's on this point that I think it's important for us to, to talk through a few things. Uh, Mark Driscoll says some things about three viewpoints or perspectives regarding sex. We'll talk really plainly about this, okay? So let's all be mature. God talks, or Mark Driscoll references these three views of sex. And he says, some people think sex is gross. Some people think sex is God. And some people see it as the Bible portrays it, that sex is a gift. Gross, God, or gift. I think these perspectives will be helpful for us. Let's just talk briefly about them. Usually, people who think it's gross, um, that comes out of usually well-intentioned and yet legalistic parents who want to protect their children. 
And so we, we teach our kids, we instill in them the idea that sex is bad, you don't ever want to do it, da 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 all of that. And, and the point, I think, there is to avoid maybe the mistakes and things that we know would be damaging, right? So in an effort to protect, we end up teaching things that are not true. Sex is not bad. It's good. God made it to be good. He gave it as a good gift. If we teach that sex is gross, think about the mental shift that has to happen in a person when they get married. The night of their union, there has to be this crazy shift from gross to good. So that's not true. And then there's a second viewpoint perspective that he talked about. He says that some have made sex their God, little lowercase g God. This is, I think, a, a, an epidemic in our culture, to be honest. People are consumed by the idea that sex is what they need to be satisfied it's like a, like a quest for the Holy Grail or something, right? If, if, if I don't get the most incredible intimate pleasure, my life is not going to be worth living. It's this desperate pursuit of some euphoric happiness that they believe only sex can give. Teenagers, I want to talk to you for a moment. It's not true. There's lots of danger here in this viewpoint for pornography, for singles, and for married people alike. If this is an issue for you, an ongoing struggle, you need to evaluate, how do I think about sex? Am I thinking that sex is, is, is sex an idol for me? If it is, then you pursue whatever you can to satisfy that need. If sex is your God, then within marriage, there will often be unrealistic expectations coupled with disappointment and then the potential for adulterous affairs. If you think sex is, if sex is your God, if it's your idol, then it will never fully satisfy, right? Just as any idol is. They never fully quench your thirst because they weren't designed for that. Gifts are just that. They're gifts. It's the giver who satisfies. So this, uh, this brings us to the third reality. We, we talked about this, but sex is good, but it cannot be your God. And so the third one is this. The Bible presents sex as a good gift from God. It's designed to be a gift between a husband and a wife that gives physical expression to consummate the bond of the covenant that they have made with each other and with God. It's a good and pleasurable gift. Now, um, I was thinking about this and one of my favorite things to do with my kids, one of the things they love the most is to build a fire. We, we love building fires. And the other day I came home. It was a long day for me at work, which means a long day for, for Lauren. I got home and as soon as I walked in the door, my sister, she was like, can you just take the kids and go outside? And I was like, Yes, okay, sure. So we went outside and uh, I was just desperate to keep everybody away from her for a little bit. So I was kind of in a yes mood, you know what I mean, men? The, you, the, girl, the kids were like, hey, can we build a fire? Yes, we can build a fire. Can we roast marshmallows? Yes, we can roast marshmallows. 
Whatever. I was just, yes, let's do it. So we started building a fire, and I just thought, this is a great time. I'm going to teach the boys how to build a slow fire, you know, slowly feeding this thing, letting it grow. And so I'm talking with the boys about it, and we're just w- walking through um, fire. Well, my boys, they uh, especially love fires. The girls go, and they gather the leaves and sticks, and they just chunk them in there. But the boys, when it starts blazing, they'll just stand there and stare. <laughs> it's mesmerizing. They love a fire. My my two year old boys have learned that you can you can put a long stick down inside that fire where the embers are burning, and you wait for a minute, and then guess what? Fire becomes portable. <laughs> They've learned that you can like take it from there and move it somewhere else. What could go wrong, right? I mean, two year old twins with flaming t- sticks running around. So. I've been working to teach them that fire is really good within the boundaries. In the fire pit, it's good. In a fireplace, it's really good. But it's not good in the dining room (laughs) or the living room or or any other room for that matter. It's not good to be portable with our fire. This is true of God's good gift of sex. It is a wonderful gift within the boundaries that God has established. Do you know that it can do some real damage outside of God's limitations? Do you know that? Remember, this is the way that God gave in the garden in the very beginning. He said, I've given you everything, all of this. You can eat it. You can enjoy it. It's all for you. Enjoy it. Except, don't eat of that tree. There's boundaries. If you eat of that tree, you'll die. God always gives good gifts to be enjoyed within the boundaries. And the boundary for the good gift of sex is within the covenant marriage between a man and a woman. This is the way God has designed it. Proverbs uses the same metaphor for the danger of sex outside of God's boundaries in Proverbs chapter 6. Verse 27 says, Can a man carry fire to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So is he who goes in to his neighbor's wife. None who touches her will go unpunished. It's a big deal, right? Outside of the limitations and boundaries of the covenant of marriage, the good gift of sex is not good. It is dangerous. God's a good giver. He knows how to give good gifts. Jesus told us that in Matthew 7. The good gifts of God are meant to be enjoyed in a way that gives glory to the giver. So the only way that God gets glory from your love life is if you trust him. And enjoy it in the way that he has designed. If you reject his design for love and for sex and for marriage, then you're not actually enjoying a gift. You have stolen and twisted what he has intended for your blessing. And now it will burn you. Can we get really specific for just a moment? Really specific. I want to talk to singles in the room. And I mean singles like never been married and singles who... Are single again. Let me just give you some pointed instruction. First, reject counterfeit pleasure. 
Reject counterfeit pleasure. Pornography is easier than ever to access. It's free for the taking, but it will cost you more than you know. Fleeting pleasures of porn and the emptiness of sex with someone you're not married to are not the gift that God has given, but a pathetic counterfeit. We live in a sex-crazed society, don't we? So many voices beckoning you to come and worship at a false God. To quote scripture directly, 1 Corinthians 6, 18 says, flee sexual immorality. Reject counterfeits. Secondly, guard your future. Speaking to our teenagers and college students right now, young singles, listen, guard your future. Selfish, sensual indulgence today can establish sinful standards of even what you find beautiful. What you think is attractive, you're developing that in your mind by the things you look at and watch. It can distort your expectations of your spouse and do some real damage to your marriage. You may also begin to associate guilt with sex or intimacy because that's all you know. When you take rather than receive from God, shame and guilt are what is on the back end of that. But the good gift of intimacy in the boundaries of marriage is like it was in the garden. Naked and what? Unashamed. So guard your future. Thirdly, young singles, believe the gospel. Believe the gospel. The gospel means good news. So here it is. Jesus saves sinners and satisfies them forever. He satisfies Your spouse can't be for you what you ultimately need. Those images on your phone or computer screen will not truly satisfy you. The gift of sex, even within a wonderful marriage, is not meant to fully satisfy you. But to point you to the giver. The God who alone fully satisfies. You may one day marry a wonderful wife, but she will make a terrible God. You may one day marry, uh, uh, capture the heart of your dream of a husband. But he is not given to you to replace God. But to help you give glory to God. So be satisfied in the Lord. All right, married folks, let's talk to you, specifically to all my married people in the house. Here's a couple of pointed instructions for you. Same, we just ended on. Believe the gospel. If your if your heart is not looking to God to be satisfied, even the most amazing intimacy will leave you longing for something else. Eve was given to Adam as a helper, not a savior. That's Jesus's role. And Jesus is better. Be satisfied in the goodness of God, not just in his good gifts. Secondly, this one's really important. Husbands, wives, listen, joyfully give. Sex is a gift, but it is not for the taking. Paul establishes this for us in 1 Corinthians 7. It's not not to be taken outside of marriage or even inside of marriage. But in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul reminds married people that in the covenant relationship, they no longer own their bodies. 
He specifically says, husband, your body belongs to your wife. Wife, your body belongs to your husband. So logically, it would make sense for his next statement to be, so just take what's yours. But that's not what he says. Instead, we're taught to give joyfully and not deprive one another. Don't take, give. The enemy can creep into the marriage bedroom with insecurity and indifference. Be on guard against both. Push past them. Be more than willing. Be wanting for your spouse. It is the enemy's game. Listen, it's the enemy's game. Singles, to make you think that sex is all that will satisfy you. And it's the enemy's game, married folk, to think you don't need it anymore. Neither are true. If we want to fully enjoy God's gift of intimacy, we must become more like him and become joyful givers, not just takers. All right, thirdly, married people, you ready? Guard your covenant. Be on guard. Just as fire outside its boundaries is dangerous, be alert to the danger of outsider affections. Guard yourself. Guard one another. No one is beyond the tempter. No one is beyond the tempter and his schemes. So talk seriously about these things. Be open. Be honest. Ask and answer the hard questions. Be prepared to extend grace and truth. Relationships are built on trust. Anybody know that to be true? Relationship, especially marriage, is built on trust. So be honest. Take necessary steps to protect what God has done in joining you together. All right, moving quickly. Third and final big truth. You ready? This is the biggest one, most important. Marriage is God's doing. Marriage is, what was the second one? Yes, a gift. Thank you. You guys are good listeners. And then lastly, marriage is for God's glory. For God's glory. We've hinted at this, but this is, the, this is the big, big truth. I want you to think about this for a moment. Marriage of a husband and a wife is a pointer to Christ and his church. To Christ and his church. And this is one thing about marriage the world knows nothing of, right? When, when people who don't know the Lord get married, they have no earthly idea that marriage is meant to show the world how God loves his people. Not only do they have no idea about it, but they don't care to live like it. The world views marriage as a self-gratifying institution, but God created it to be self-sacrificing. The world gets married to try and have the beauty of God's gift, but with no regard to the giver. We know that doesn't work. The world attempts to take from God rather than receive from Him. God has designed love and marriage for your joy And for his glory. The truth is, you can't have one without the other. God has given marriage as a portrait of a greater covenant. So even in the Garden of Eden, when God brought Eve to Adam, this is what's mind-blowing, is that he already had in mind what this marriage was pointing to. Even before they sinned, God was painting a picture of the redemptive covenant between Christ and his church. So there's another place this scripture is quoted. Genesis 2, 24 and 25 is quoted in Ephesians 5, 
Paul quotes it. These same verses about God's design for love and marriage. And he unfolds for us a great mystery. So hang with me a few more minutes. Here's what he says. Paul says husbands and wives actually point to the eternal covenant between Christ and his church. Listen to Ephesians 5, 31 and 32. Therefore, he's quoting, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Now listen to what the Holy Spirit says through Paul. This mystery is profound and I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. That's awesome, right? Mind-blowingly awesome. It's this mystery that explains how a husband loves and leads and lays down his life for his wife. Christian husband, you're to show the world how Christ loves us. How he holds fast to his bride, the church. This explains how a wife is meant to submit to and come under the leadership of her husband to to respect, to honor him as the church does Christ. These roles are not interchangeable. Just as the role of Christ and church are not interchangeable. He will never submit to us. And we will never lead him. He laid down his life for us. That's how he loves us. Husband, that's how we are to love our wives. These roles are rooted in the structures of creation. And they call out to the world to behold the glory of Christ. Now, here's the kicker. Marriage on earth doesn't last forever. I know you might have carved it in a tree somewhere, you know, a J and L forever, right? Um, But the Bible teaches it differently, right? It's until death do us part. What is that all about? Why is it until death do we part? It's because marriage is a parable of a greater and lasting covenant. The temporary will be done away with and the forever will be on the stage. Marriage is one of the greatest ways that God wants to teach us about his covenant love at death. The marriage covenant gives way to the eternal covenant it represented. I don't know if you remember the story, but they asked Jesus about a woman who'd been married seven times. And they said in the resurrection, they were challenging him about resurrection in the resurrection, which man will be her husband. And Jesus said in the resurrection, we are not given in marriage. That's where this truth comes from. You won't be married in heaven. Do you know that? And the reason is because what this marriage on earth represents will then be a reality. We will step into the glorious union of a true covenant with Almighty God. (laughs) The joy that Adam expressed over the woman taken from his body is a glimpse of the joy that Jesus takes in his church, which is his body. Eve came from the man when he was put to sleep. And in a similar way, the church came from the bleeding, wounded side of the Lord Jesus when he was three days in the sleep of death. Like when Adam saw her and he shouted, at last, the day is coming when Jesus will rejoice over his bride. 
the church for all eternity. At last, come and join me. Marriage is God's doing. It is God's gift. And it is for God's glory. Amen, church? Let's pray.